Good morning, church. Good morning, Jubilee Church. Thank you for inviting me to come and speak to you this morning. Um, for those of you that don't know me, I am Richard. Uh, I am part of the leadership team at New Life Church, and it's a great privilege to be bringing the Word of God to you this morning. Let's just pray. Father, I just ask that your presence would rest upon each and every home and every person this morning. And that your word would go forth, that it would bear fruit, that it would be a word in season. And that it would encourage and that it would bless your people in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Right, guys, this morning, I really want you to engage with this message this morning. I know online church is hard. I know sometimes it feels a bit... uh, separated from what we're used to. I know it's tough sometimes to watch a screen on a Sunday morning and I know the chances are quite a few of you are still in your pyjamas and that is okay by me. But what I want you to do is take a big sip of coffee to wake up, to engage, to really enter in because I really believe this morning that God has a word for you, a word of encouragement, a word of power and a word that I really hope will bless you. Right, so let's get into it. Uh, So the verse we're going to look at this morning is Jeremiah 29, verse 11. The Bible says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now I'm sure that many of you listening today would have heard this verse many times before. You would be really familiar with it. In fact, I would suggest that some of you have maybe had this spoken over you as a personal word of encouragement. But today, I'd like to really look at the context that this verse is found in and to draw out some thoughts that as we go into the rest of this year, you will find encouraging. So, what's the background and context of what we're looking at here? Well, Jeremiah was a prophet to God's people for 40 years. He had witnessed much over this period of time. He served King Josiah, the last faithful king of Judah. But within two short decades, he watched the spiritual, moral, social, financial and political decline that led to his country's demise. He experienced persecution. He was commanded not to marry. I guess the Lord figured he had suffered enough. And arguably, over that whole period of 40 years, he only had two people who responded favourably to his message. The historical background of Jeremiah is this. God's people Israel have enjoyed the relative stability of King Saul, King David and King Solomon. After the death of Solomon, the kingdom breaks out into civil war. And the nation is divided into the northern kingdom of Judah, sorry, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Around 720 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered by the Assyrians and wiped off the map. Approximately 130 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah, having continued in idolatry and despite warnings from God, is now invited by a new superpower the Babylonians. 
The first exiles are taken into Babylon around 605 BC. And this would have included somebody like Daniel. A few years later, in 601 BC, the kingdom of Judah rebels alongside some other vassal states against Babylon. But in 597 BC, Jerusalem is besieged and surrenders. The king, royal officials, craftsmen and community leaders are all exiled to Babylon. Now this was a common strategy used by the Babylonians for particularly unruly or rebellious societies. Why? Because in bringing people into Babylon and making the people live there, they knew that within a generation or two, they would culturally assimilate them. They would lose their belief systems. They would lose their identity. Ultimately, they would become easier to rule. And God's people knew this. Understanding the context of what is happening here is a key tool to us understanding the passage. Nebuchadnezzar then appoints a vassal leader, King Zedekiah, over Judah. And it is here we find Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 29, the prophet writing a letter to this second group of exiles in Babylon. So we can see the historical context, but for a moment, let us try and imagine ourselves in the place of those who are in exile. And the Bible can help us with that in Psalm 137. The Bible says this, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I would say that at the moment we can all relate to that feeling of exile in one way or another. Whether that be exiled this morning from something that we find familiar, gathering together in church, or whether that be an exile from our workplace, or whether that be our experience of being on our own and cut off from our families and our friends. It is something that we are now familiar with. So in some small way, we can relate to how these exiles felt. So let us look at the passage of scripture that Jeremiah 29, 11 is found in. I'm going to read verses 1 to 14 of this particular chapter. The Bible says this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elsiah, the son of Shapham, and Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Israel, 
to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on me, upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. I think this is a wonderful portion of scripture and passage. Here's some food for thought as we go into this. So there's a lot in these verses. But before we begin looking at the, at the key ones, I would just like to draw your attention to a couple of things to keep in mind as we continue. Firstly, verse 10. Jeremiah prof- prof- prophetically states the exile is going to last 70 years, which would have been a difficult truth to receive. Why? Well, in the previous chapter, we read another prophet called Hananiah spoke to the very same exiles, telling them that the yoke of Babylon would be broken off and they would return to Jerusalem within two years. This would have been a far more palatable outcome. But the word Hananiah spoke was false and it cost him his life. Jeremiah spoke truth. And this is confirmed in the opening verse of the book of Ezra. Sometimes the truth is a difficult thing to hear. And the truth of God's word is not always palatable to us in how we choose to live our lives. Secondly, another thought to hold on to as we look at this passage. In verse 1, it says Nebuchadnezzar took or carried the exiles to Babylon. But in verses 4, 7 and 14, God says, I sent or I carried you into exile. So the question is, which is it? Can I suggest that what God is saying is that social forces brought you to this city and into these circumstances. But I was using those forces because I have a purpose. I have a plan for your welfare, a plan for your future, a plan to give you hope. 
So I believe it, was, it would be good this morning to take a closer look at a couple of the verses here. Let us begin with verses 5 and 6. The Bible says this, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So what is God saying? This is how I want you to live as exiles. Make this city your home. Be fruitful. Settle and live. Do not withdraw from the people and the society that I have placed you, but in fact, move in. But respectfully resist the culture around you. So is this relevant to us today? Yes, absolutely. In the New Testament, in 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, uh, in 1 Peter 2.11, and in Hebrews 11.13, as Christians, we are all described as exiles in this world. In fact, the term literally translates as resident alien. So we are called to be residents of this world, this city even. We should be woven into the social, spiritual and economic fabric of our society and yet different, alien, representing another world, another kingdom. But there is a tension here, resident but not assimilated. Maybe a better way we could consider this is found in 2 Corinthians 5.20 where Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Think about the role of an ambassador. An ambassador lives in country A, but represents country B. An ambassador is bilingual. They speak the language of country A and they speak it fluently. As Christians, we need to think about what this really means. You see, if you only have Christian friends and you only read Christian books and you only listen to Christian music, the only language you'll end up speaking is Christian. But as an ambassador, you need to be bilingual. You need to be able to speak the language of the people who don't know Jesus. What else can we say? An ambassador appreciates enormously the country that they live in. They understand the culture, they understand the pressures, and they cultivate relationships and build bridges between one country and another. But an ambassador never forgets that they represent the values and interests of a different country, a different kingdom. For me, this is a big part of what it is to be a Christian today. So we are to be residents, but we are also to be fruitful. So as a Christian, how are we fruitful? 
I think being fruitful is a bit like trying to be happy. I'm not sure you can walk out of your front door one morning and say, I'm going to be happy. You have to discover the things that make you happy and do them. And hopefully, happiness follows. I think fruitfulness as a Christian can be similar to this. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. The Bible says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in verses 3 and 4, Peter is basically saying that God acted in his infinite power to accomplish salvation. And through that salvation, we have been called to his glory and excellence. We have been called to be Christ-like. And the vehicle that gets us there is, his, is the precious and very great promises God has given us. Then Peter says, make every effort to supplement or add to your faith. Now we know we cannot add to our salvation. Christ has done it all. We bring nothing to the table. So what is Peter saying? I think it's simply this. Go for it. Go for it. It is an exhortation. Look at all you have in Jesus and go for it. You have your faith. But don't be satisfied with that. Let your faith affect your character and your virtue. But don't just be satisfied with that. Add to your character and your virtue knowledge. Read your Bible. Understand scripture. But don't just be satisfied with increasing your knowledge, yet your knowledge affect how you live. Let it affect your self-control. Don't lose your temper. Don't get upset with your brothers and sisters. But don't just be satisfied with that. Add steadfastness. You know, you need steadfastness as a Christian. I think God sometimes places us in churches just because he puts us alongside people that do rub us up the wrong way and challenge us. And when you show self-control towards those sort of people, chances are they won't even notice. And you're going to need steadfastness to get past that. It's important. You're demonstrating steadfastness today by engaging online in these difficult circumstances. But don't just be satisfied with being steadfast Add godliness. When those people who rub you up the wrong way 
don't acknowledge you or, or don't notice you're making an effort with them, start to see them as God sees them. But don't just be satisfied with being God, having godliness towards them. Start to show them affection. Start to care for them. And don't just be satisfied with that. Love them. Then Peter says this, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Which is basically the negative way of saying, you will be fruitful. You won't be able to help it. It will just pop out. And notice the order. It starts with faith and finishes with love. And that is the New Testament. So as exiles, we are called to be resident and we are called to be fruitful. And the end point of that fruitfulness is love. And that leads us to verse 7 of Jeremiah 29, where those exiles are called to sacrificially love the city. Verse 7 says this, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, he, made, he has made some statements that they would have found shocking. Shock number one, your exile is going to last 70 years. Shock number two, move into the city and become part of the social fa fabric. Shock number three, sacri sacrificially love by praying for the welfare of the city where you are exiled. This statement is the biggest shock of all and arguably the key verse in the passage. Why? The only other city that the Jews have been commanded to pray for was Jerusalem. Psalm 122 says this, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who what? Love you. The word peace or welfare, depending on your Bible translation, is the Hebrew word shalom, which has a far greater depth of meaning. It means peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, thriving, flourishing, the spiritual, social and economic welfare of the city. The exiles are to pray for the shalom of Babylon. And you cannot pray for the shalom of Babylon without loving them. But these are the people that are their enemies. They have persecuted them. They have killed them. They have forced them to live in a place where they do not want to be. I think this is the nearest thing in the Old Testament to what Jesus says in Matthew 5.44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. So this would have shocked the exiles but it should not shock us. So how does all of this apply to us today? What is the link? Let us think about our world. Did you know that world populations are increasingly moving from rural areas into the urban city? This is a global phenomenon across both developed and developing countries. 
It was estimated in 2015 that globally 5 million people are moving to cities every month. In Africa and China, this is leading to rural areas actually becoming depopulated. In the West, it tends to be young people moving into the city. Now that all might sound a little bit far off, so what about London? What about Croydon? Well, the estimated population of London is at present 9.3 million people. It has grown by 1.2 million in the last 10 years. Croydon is the second most densely populated London borough at approximately 385,000 people. It has grown by roughly 40,000 people in 10 short years. So why is all this relevant? Tim Keller says this, you need churches everywhere there are people, but the people of the world are moving into cities faster than the church is willing to. He also quotes a guy called Roger Greenaway who says this, it may be helpful to reflect on the fact that as on the fact that urbanisation as a present fact of life for most of the human family is a reality under the providential control of God. Acts 17, 26 and 27 says this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. I think this is a truth that the church is starting to experience here in the city of Croydon. You know, at Christmas, we ran a small event up in New Addington. And uh, a family, a local family in the area, decided it would be good to put on a small Christmas uh, event for the kids in their road. It was one road. It was advertised on uh, Facebook, just to the local community. The lady who put it together anticipated getting maybe 10 to 20 children sign up. In the first hour, 102 children and 40 families signed up to come. For me, that is people feeling their way towards God and perhaps, hopefully, finding him. Roger Greenaway goes on to say this, in light of these verses, and that's Acts 17, 26 and 27, city growth across the world is part of God's plan in history. God in our time is moving climatically through a variety of social, political and economic factors. The sign of our time is the city. Through worldwide migration to the city, God may be setting the stage for Christian missions' greatest and perhaps final hour. I think that is really exciting. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but our city of Croydon is not in a great way. And sometimes even I've thought, I'm off. I've gone on right move, had a look at how much I can get for my house and thought I can move off to somewhere else and, and be far more comfortable. But Croydon's been making the headlines for all the wrong reasons. The council has been mismanaged, is bankrupt, it's forcing the closure of libraries and children's centres. People have lost jobs, shops are closing, schools are struggling. And yet, 
more and more people and more and more homes and flats are being built and being filled up with people moving in. On top of all of that, we have this pandemic where people have lost loved ones. People have become isolated and lonely. It's hard at the moment. But this is our home. This is our city. You know, some of us haven't been to church for 10 months. But when we can return, we are going to need all of you to make sure you get back to church. We don't want you getting too used to online church. Because we're going to need you here. And why are we going to need you here? Because our cities is going to need our churches. In fact, our city is going to need a whole bunch of churches. Big and small, established and new. Because, because quite simply, where there are people, we need churches. We need Christians. Because the people of this city need Jesus. And they need us here to demonstrate his love for them. Brothers and sisters, it will cost us something. Sacrificial love always has a price. For some, it might be laying aside your own plans. For others, you might be taken out of your comfort zone. For others, it will be something new. Others might be rejected. Others might be persecuted. For some, that dream of a big house now becomes a downsize. But remember, when Jesus left heaven and came to earth, it was a definite downsize. He was rejected. He was persecuted. And while we were still enemies, he gave everything for us. That is our example of sacrificial love. This is how we are to love the city and seek its welfare. And, in, and wonderfully, in doing that individually and corporately, I believe we will find our own. Now, in closing, we arrive at the final verses of this passage, which I said I was going to preach on, but have not yet mentioned. But there is a reason for this. At the beginning of this year, I started reading a book called The Unseen Realm. This is an excellent book that looks at the ancient context of scripture and helps explain the supernatural worldview at the time. One of the things the author states is that it's helpful to read and think of the Bible a bit like a mosaic, to be able to step back and see how all the parts interconnect and form part of a wonderful truth and whole. And in some small way, I'm hoping that this is what has happened this morning. The message that God gave the exiles through the prophet Jeremiah was hard. It was going to be difficult. He said to them, your exile for some of you is going to last a lifetime. He told them to make this foreign city your home, to seek the city's welfare by sacrificially loving it. How was all of this going to be possible? Because he gave them this promise. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and, 
and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So what is the picture I hope you can see? Well, I think life is hard sometimes. It just feels like one problem after another, especially when you consider what we have gone through over the last 10 months. We find ourselves praying, I'm a Christian, get me out of here. I think this is our natural inclination. And because the situations we find ourselves in can be tough and painful, we start to distance ourselves and keep, ourselves and keep everything at arm's length. That environment, that city we might be facing can be our work, it can be our school, it can be our college, it can be our home, it can be our family. We hold everything at a distance. When Jeremiah wrote this, his letter to the exiles, they were not in the city. They were outside and had made camp by the Kabar Canal. They were keeping their distance. So here is the question for us as a church and as individuals. Where are we at the moment? Are you keeping things at arm's length? Are you camped outside the city of your circumstances? You know, the enemy will say to you, you don't want to be in here. You need to get as far away as possible. But here is the truth and the challenge. The last thing the enemy wants you to do is say, I'm moving in. This is going to be my home. And then the enemy is likely to say to you, well, what are you going to do? And you can say, I'm going to be fruitful. And the enemy will say to you, how are you going to be fruitful? How is that going to look? And you can say, I'm going to sacrificially love. And the enemy will say, is that your plan? You'll never make it through. And you can say, no, it's God's plan for me. It's not for evil, but it is a plan for my good and my welfare. It is a plan that gives me a future. It is a plan that gives me hope. It is a plan that when I pray, he will hear me. It is a plan that when I seek him, I will find him. And it is a plan that will carry me through this time. And when my work here is done, it is a plan that will gather me home from where he has sent me and where I will no longer be in exile, but I will be a citizen of his glorious, eternal kingdom. Amen. Father God, I just thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that right now your hand would go forth and it would just touch the hearts and minds and souls of your people. I pray your Holy Spirit would just speak 
into individual circumstances and situations. I pray, I pray you will bring peace and comfort and encouragement where it is needed. And Lord Jesus, as we go our separate ways this morning, I pray, Lord, that your blessing will be upon your people, that it will be mighty upon them. In Jesus' holy name, amen.